we will be in Luke chapter 4, right at the end of it. As you're turning, I'll remind you of some of the announcements that we have in your bulletin there, if you thought to check it. Uh, this week is going to be the last week for anyone to decide that God wants you to go to Japan. We currently have a missionary in Japan working with students, and we're going to give you the opportunity to go see him this spring if you want to. We'd love to take you. We still have room for a couple more. Uh, last week, though, to commit to that, so let Levi Linville know if you're with us. Uh, additionally, coming up March 4th, we have the Women's Seminar here on Saturday morning. That means for you, ladies, free breakfast, and more importantly, time to get to know the other ladies in the church, and we'll have some good teaching. Uh, the theme this year, interestingly enough, is going to be on how do we handle comparisons. Have you, if you've ever been tempted at all in your life to compare your parenting, your marriage, your website to another woman, uh, we're going to talk about that coming up March 4th. Men, your job is to babysit in your home. Let your wives go to this thing. It'll be a good time. That's March 4th. Uh, and then additionally, not long after that, the men are going to have their retreat. That is the weekend of March 17th through 19th. A couple nights away together over the word and there on the water with some uh, fishing and shooting and camping, all that kind of fun stuff. We'll be doing that coming up in March, and that is for you. You can sign up today in the foyer for that, and uh, uh, that's where we're headed. So as we get, hopefully you've arrived now, to Luke uh, chapter 4, and I'm just going to pray for us today, and uh, after I pray, we're going to continue on with our sermon series here. We've been walking on a trail together through the wonderful forest of Luke, and uh, we're just going to go over the text briefly, and then I'll point out some words of hope that Luke has for us. But let's pray together. Blessed be you, O Lord, our rock, our steadfast love, and our fortress in Christ, you are our stronghold and our deliverer. King Jesus is our shield. And in him this morning, we take refuge. O oh Lord, we are but a breath before you. Our days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O oh Lord, and come down this morning. Stretch out your hand from on high for your spirit and for your name's sake. Rescue us. Deliver us from the many waters of our trials, from the hand of our enemies. Father, as citizens of your kingdom, may we sing a new song to you, O God. Rescue us and deliver us from the unjust people and structures of our day. May there be no cry of distress in our streets, because the righteous King has come in Jesus. God, bless us this morning. Bless your chosen people. For blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we're just going to start off Luke 4, reading together verse 42. I'll read through this and then the subsequent story in chapter 5. First, just pointing out some things to you. And as I said, then we'll go back over the text. <laughs> And look for some words of hope. So beginning in Luke 4, 42, you can read with me here. 
And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. The he here is Jesus, and when we last saw him, he was on a healing spree. You might remember there in the city of Capernaum. As we faded out, the sun was setting in there in the house of Peter's mother-in-law. And as far as you could see, there was a line out the door of that house with people bringing in uh, sick and demon-possessed people. And apparently Jesus stayed up uh, way into the night, healing many, exercising many, showing his authority, showing the power and the compassion of God. And that's where we left him. And apparently, uh, after the next, next morning, uh, he woke up and he, he wanted solace. He wanted quietude. He wanted to get away. He spent the night with the evening. Maybe you felt like that all the evening with people. He just wanted to get away and get with God. But the masses won't have it, we're told here in 42, the last part of verse 42. The people sought him out and they came to him. And they would have kept him from leaving them in that town. And you might remember, and you might be saying to yourself, if you read the book of Luke, oh, how the crowds have changed. Because in chapter 2, a little earlier, uh, when he was reading the scrolls, the people gathered him up. They, they tried to catch him, and they wanted to kill him. The masses wanted to throw him, tombstone him right off a cliff. Thankfully, he escaped. But here, the reverse is true. Now the crowds want to keep him there uh, almost like a, a, a town fixer. we got a problem, Jesus will fix it. Let's keep him here in this town. But that wasn't going to be. They've seen the glory of the coming Lord, but such a light's not meant to be kept under a basket. Verse 43 says that Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. I must preach the good news to other towns as well. Some of you guys may have followed uh, the career of a local kid named John Wall. He grew up over here on East Davie Street, just two blocks south of us. He's a basketball player. And it was one thing when John Wall had the best jumper on all of East Davie Street. That was one thing. But it's another thing as he grows up. He's now playing in the NBA All-Star Game. He's one of the best players in the world. It was as if Raleigh wasn't quite big enough to contain his game. And the same is true with Jesus. Jesus' glory must abound to other towns, right? It demands global appreciation, and that's what's going on here. Jesus says, I've got to spread this, and indeed we see that he does. We look at verse 42. He was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And we want to make note here of the content of Jesus' preaching. He's going around saying that God's kingdom has arrived in himself. He's going around saying, I'm the king and I am here. The kingdom's not here fully yet, but it is substantially present in me, in my words, in my work, in my person. The king has arrived. And now as we switch over into chapter 5, what we'll see is that we have a living lesson of the arrival of the kingdom of God. A parable of sorts, a story that's meant to illustrate, it's meant to give legs and fins to the idea of a kingdom that has come. 
So that's how we should read the story that we're about to jump into. It's a picture of what kingdom life is now going to be like. It's not just a fishing story, although it is that. It's a picture, an illustration of the kingdom of God that has arrived in Jesus of Nazareth. So let's read on. Verse 1 of chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So Jesus hadn't gotten far, actually. He finds himself on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And that's that 8 by 14 mile lake. It sets atop the Jordan um, River there like a, like a bud on a flower, like a petal on a flower. And this is where Jesus finds himself. And this will be the only time you see Jesus here in Luke by a lake to teach. He's seen something in creation that he's going to use to teach others. He's the king of creation, so he's going to take this opportunity to show off his own glory. Let's see what he says. In, in verse 2, uh, we hear that Jesus saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. or done fishing. Verse 3, and so getting into one of the boats, Jesus commandeers one here, uh, it was Simon's, and he asked Simon to put out a little from the land. And then he sat down, Jesus, and he taught the people from the boat. So Jesus notes what is apparently a fishing partnership here, a small middle-class type of enterprise. The brothers James and John had one boat, and Simon, he was uh, in the other vessel. And Jesus beelines for Simon's boat. It's no coincidence that he picks out here Simon, and he goes over there, and he gets inside his vessel in the year 1986 uh, on the Sea of Galilee, archaeologists actually uh, found the, the, a boat that matched this type of description, a common boat that would have been the type of boat that uh, Jesus would have gotten into here. And uh, the dimensions of the boat, it's about 27 feet long. It's about the size, uh, the length of a tennis court, the width of it uh, from, from sideline to sideline, and it's about only seven feet wide. They're not really big boats, but that was the common vessel they would use. They would fill those things up with fish uh, each night, and they would bring them in, they would sell them, and that was the trade. That's what was going on here, mostly made of cedar, had a flat bottom. The idea was that Jesus would hop in that boat, get a little bit offshore, he would anchor down, and then he could speak without people pressing into him. He could create some distance here, and so he jumps in the boat, and he does this. And as one writer says, now the people couldn't hear as well now. He's not mic'd up. But they could see the miracle to come much better. Verse 4. Now Jesus teaches. And when he's finished teaching, he turns to Simon. And he says this. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. At this point in the text, there's probably a huge sigh or groan by Simon. We don't hear that, but he's like, ah. he answers, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. Exclamation mark. But at your word, at your word, I will let down the nets. So nighttime was the right time to catch this type of fish. You did your fishing uh, into the wee hours of the nights because that's when they would bite the best. And he had done that. He had fished all night long. 
And now he's, he's, he's finished. The day has come. He's packing up. He doesn't want to go fishing again, and yet he agrees to do it. His mood is probably pretty sour at this point. He's in no mood for a fishing joke. Speaking of, <laughs> you know who the fish call when they have to, when their piano breaks, right? Piano tuna. That's right. Piano tuna. I like that one. That's not bad. What do you call a fish with no eye? You like that one? No? <laughs> I got a shake of the head on that one. Wait, wait. Much more seriously, did you hear there was a fight at the Red Lobster this weekend? Three fish got battered. <laughs> that got a chuckle. Pastor Hunter hasn't laughed at a one of those. <laughs> hey, bro. <laughs> Listen, if you can come up with a better fish pun, you just let me know. <laughs> He's in no joking mood, Peter, but he does agree to submit to the master. Takes him out onto the lake into the deep water. And look, look what happened, verse 6. And when they'd done this, that has gone out into the deeper part and lowered the nets, they, they enclosed a large number of fish, so much so that their nets were breaking. So they signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and they filled both the boats, so much so that the boats began to sink. So tried and true nets were no match for the sheer bulk of this catch. Picture it in your mind. Imagine the utter shock Simon went through. He, you know, he goes over. He's in his boat. He's probably yawning from lack of sleep. Okay, throws the net over the boat, and then, just as he does, you know, the whole boat tips. He's like, "Whoa!" He starts pulling up. He he lets a yelp out to James and John. Hey, come on over! And he, he begins to see the flipping right as he's pulling this net right up, and and he's about to pull in, and he's overwhelmed with amazement. What in the world just happened? I was here all night in the same spot. I've done this before. This is not when they bite. They bite at night. What is going on? And at some point, when he settles down a little bit, Simon turns to Jesus. Verse 8. And when Simon Peter saw it, now note here, the name Peter is now being attached to Simon. Probably so there is no doubt that this fisherman being humbled here becomes the leader of all of the disciples. Very interesting that the author decides to put Peter's name in here for the first time. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish. That they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So Simon's chief emotion during this time, apparently, somewhat surprisingly, is fear, right? Now think about that. Here is the biggest financial windfall of his professional career. And yet, in the presence of Jesus, he's experiencing fear. And he actually turns to Jesus. 
to begin to confess his own sinfulness. He doesn't list all of the things he's done bad because this is deeper than that, right? He says, I know who you are and I must confess I am sinful. We'll come back to that point later, but for now, let's keep, keep reading here in verse 10. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says back to Simon, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You will be catching men. The similar accounts in Mark 1 and the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, we have the famous line, follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of men, right? But here in our text, he's not emphasizing fishing as much as he is catching. He uses catching language, and that will be important. Verse 11, as we wrap it up, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed Jesus. They left everything and they followed Jesus. For Peter and those fishing with them, today is the first day of the rest of his life. Everything changes here. He answers the call to discipleship from the Lord. He ditches the sea to follow the one who made it, the one who spoke it into existence. And on that little note, our story ends. Sermon doesn't end. The story, the story ends. And I just want to comb back through the text here and pluck out some hope. Let, let's, let's stop and enjoy the scenery. Let's, let's remember here um, what God has done in this story. What's he trying to tell us? And don't forget, this story is placed right after the fact that Jesus said, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell people the kingdom has come. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exalt in the glories of the kingdom. People have to know that a king has arrived. I went out for Valentine's Day and with my wife and saw the romantic movie called The Great Wall. <laughs> Have you seen that advertised? <laughs> yeah. She's such a wonderful wife, she allowed me to see something up my alley. But it, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's Matt Damon, and he's a Westerner, and he jumps into, uh, he, he finds himself exploring, and uh, he winds up in China, an ancient China during the Song Dynasty, and he's on the Great Wall, and his job, part of it, is to protect the whole Song Dynasty from another empire coming in. And there's a big clash of empire, uh, this, this great Chinese empire fighting what turned out to be some crazy creatures, uh, but it was a fantastic display, and I, I walked in there, actually, and uh, I couldn't find a seat. I was a little late, but I ended up sitting right up front, you know, you hate to do that, but there was no other, this place was packed, and I was like, man, people, people really want to see this clash of kingdoms where everybody just bored, one of the two, but uh, I started thinking about that, and I thought also, um, you know, the the hugely popular series, I'm not recommending it, but um, in 1996, George Martin released his first book in the uh, fiction uh, saga, uh, Song of Ice and Fire. HBO turned it into a series called The Game of Thrones, and it's all about uh, these kingdoms warring. A king, a famous king has, uh, has died, and every kingdom is now fighting, and there's a scramble or the throne, as you have one kingdom coming in and kind of washing over another. And I think that's the picture we're supposed to have here as believers as we're reading this. 
This story is an illustration of what it's like when kingdoms clash. Jesus Christ has brought the kingdom of God and it's washing over the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of Satan in such a way that there's a clash. It's a cosmic yet personal clash that you currently find yourself in the middle of. The Bible is saying this is what life is going to be like for you because there's things going on that you just can't see. This spiritual kingdom stuff is the real deal and everything is going to change. This this Game of Thrones that's going on has some new rules and that's what I want to point out here. Let's just take a few moments and look at some of the new rules that we see here as kingdom clash. The first one would be that we see in the story is that everything is up for grabs. Everything is up for grabs. Here's what I mean by that. When we start reading the story, I don't know if you noticed it, but a boat all of a sudden becomes a pulpit. A pressing crowd is distance. Night fishing becomes noon fishing. What's up with that? No bites morphs into a, one historic yield. Fear turns to following as this professional Fisherman turns into an amateur disciple. Everything, it seems, is now up for grabs in the realm of this new kingdom that's coming in. Everything's up for grabs because this king is now renewing. He's transforming. He's recreating everything to reflect better the glory of God. He's doing it so much so that the apostle Paul could look at it and the apostle Paul says, you know what? God has set all things under the feet of this new kingdom. He's ruling over all things. Everything is up for grabs. There's nothing that might not be touched by the hand of the king. I love this new rule. I like it. I like this new rule a lot. All new rules aren't good. I don't know about the Eurostep and the NBA, but this new rule, I like it because it means that your family can be transformed. Your family can be transformed. This week alone, for every day of the week that I worked, I was contacted by one of us to pray for family issues. And I love it. I love it because that means that we still have hope that God can transform our messes here. And I get, I get that you might currently be estranged from your parents. But in light of this, know that Christ gets it too. And he, he might just decide to fish there one day. He might fish in that relationship. And I understand that your husband, he's passive. He cares more about hobbies and videos than he does about servant leadership. I, I get that. The new king understands it too. And you might just wake up tomorrow finding out that last night where there was no fish, today there is change. There is fish. Have hope that God can transform your family realities. A lot of you are in tough, tough parenting situations. We've talked about it before. This this little cute baby you used to cuddle to sleep every night. He used to treat you so well with the center Uh, You were the center of his universe. Now he's a teenager, right? Treats you like Kylo Ren treats Han. I get it. But Jesus sees this too. 
One morning, God might just bust that net. He might come in, and you have to leave room for God to work. You have to hope and know that everything is up for grabs in this new kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's a simple point, but it's very profound. If you can adjust your trust and your hope to include the fact that everything is up for grabs. If you look at the life of Jesus, he, he, he doesn't change everything. He walks through, and he doesn't end all poverty, right? He doesn't uh, completely stamp out all demonic activity. And that's what, what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God is going to give you this golden existence here on earth, but you do notice that he will surprise the heck out of people. He'll, he'll, he'll walk in, and he'll change that. And that demon will be gone. This guy who was changed to a, chained to a tree for years, Jesus comes in, and all of a sudden, he's no longer a demoniac. That's the way the new kingdom works. And it works the same in your life as well. Everything is up for grabs. Rule number two. The king rescues many through us. That's the second rule of the kingdom. The king rescues many, and he does it through us. There's a living lesson here in the story, and it is that there will be a bountiful catch. And now, this is a tricky one, because if you picture what's going on, and if you really look at this story as a picture of the realities of the kingdom, you might think, well, that wasn't so good for the fish, was it? Jesus plucked him out of the water, and it's good for Peter, but all oh, the fishies died, right? But it's hard to understand, but if you understand the words Peter is using, it's all about the catch. This catching language, if we had time, we could look in Old Testament passages, and the catching language is more um, about rescuing and saving, and that's, that's what's going on here in the eyes of Jesus. There's a rescuing that's happening and there's a saving that uh, will not be undone. The kingdom, it, everything is up for grabs and the king rescues many through us. And I was uh, out this week and I was eating with uh, Levi Limbo who uh, works here for us as an international um, uh, kind of uh, resident here. He's helping us do international work here in Raleigh, and as we were going over this, um, talking about his residency stuff, we went out to eat, and when we were done eating, we were at a restaurant that I, I sometimes go to, and uh, Levi walked up to one of the workers as we were leaving, and he said, can, can I pray for you somehow? And so we talked briefly, and it was kind of an awkward conversation, honestly, because the guy kept going back to his crucifix, and he wanted to talk about his crucifix, and we wanted to talk about Jesus, but we ended up saying, we'll pray for you. But when we walked out, and I thought, you know, that guy didn't really want to talk too much about God, and I don't know if you ever have these conversations with people when you, you walked out, and you're tempted to be discouraged because it feels like they want nothing to do with the king of the universe. Uh, but then I stopped, and I, I knew it doesn't have to be that way now, because God can rush in and he's promised that a multitude of people will be caught. A whole net of people, gobs of people will now come to him and he might just surprise us in doing it. It doesn't guarantee that every single person that I talk to is going to come to Christ, but he does guarantee that he will catch all who are his and it will be humongous.
And as I was walking back from that encounter that I felt, well, that really didn't go that great. I'll talk to him again. I've talked to him before. I'll keep praying for him. I was reminded of one who was caught, uh, not by me, but someone else in the church had, uh, had shared with this person. And, and I got to baptize this person into the family of Jesus Christ. And I thought, you know, I, I was part of that catch, right? Each one of you who labors in KTC or working with students, one day when they come to faith, you're a part of that catch. It's as if Jesus is saying, uh, as we come together, he will catch many through all of our efforts. This should give us a lot of hope here. We as members of TCC are vehicles for the catching of this enormous yield. And there's another truth here that I don't want you to miss as well within the same rule. Uh, there's a persona here. This persona of man catcher should be integral to your identity. I don't want us to miss that. This persona of one who goes out and catches, that's supposed to be essential to who we are. It's like an ancient time. If you were the uh, ring bearer to the king, or, or maybe you were the, the cup bearer, or you were the court jester, or you were the king's guard, that was your identity. That is who you are. We now should think of ourselves as people catchers. Think about it with Peter. When he saw Peter... He could have said a lot of different things right at this moment. He could have said, you're going to be a father who honors God. You're going to be a husband. You're going to instruct your kids in awesome ways. All those things are glorious things. But what he said to Peter, he took his vocation and he made a play on words. And he said, you know how you used to be a catcher of fish? Now you're going to catch men. If he was talking to a mother, I think he would have said similar. You know how you're a mother of a couple of daughters? Now you're going to be a spiritual mother of a lot of people who you bring in. You're going to give birth to a lot of people. I think Jesus said this to Peter because it's essential to who we are as believers. People who go out and make disciples, who catch others. We often lose that, I think, as Christians. We think it's an add-on. But for Christ, in his relationship with Peter, it was essential. You are a catcher of men. So we've seen a couple new rules here in this new game of thrones, this clash of kingdoms. Everything is up for grabs. The king will rescue many through us. Let's look at another rule here. We see the king comforts us as his subjects. The king comforts us as his subjects. Watching the story, what happens when Simon finally gets a clue? Around about verse 8 in the story, you can just see Simon there. He's got an overflowing net, and then he looks to Jesus, and then he sees the boats about to tip. He looks at James and John, and then he looks about to Jesus, and he gets it. And he's literally floored. In the boat, he drops to his knees, and he turns to Jesus. And he says, depart from me. Now, you might not expect him to say that, right? You just saw the miraculous. The fish have come in. And yet he says, get out of here, man. Depart from me. Why? Because I'm a sinful man, O Lord. In many ways, this is Simon and our first move in the new game. The first rule of the new kingdom 
as that we must see ourselves in light of the glory of the King. Jesus has beauty. He has sovereign power. He has authority. And we have none of that. In fact, we have the opposite of that, it could be said. Peter is simply saying, I am not you. You have all of this glory. You have knowledge. You have power. And I am unholy. That's Peter's initial admission of who he is as compared to God. One author writes about this, and this point in the story, this preacher wrote this, the awareness of God's presence directly or via a surrogate produces such a response in people, it yields a sense of unworthiness at receiving God's bounty. It's counterintuitive. You think he would say, the blessing is mine. Instead, he says, get away from me, Jesus. I can't handle it. What in the world's going on? He's embracing what we might call the bad news. He's embracing the bad news that innately, you're not so good. As compared to Christ, you are actually evil. Where Christ always turns to God, you yourself turn away from God. And this is evil. This is the core of sinfulness to reject and not worship the Creator, the King. And you must confess this blight to God if you are ever going to flourish in the new kingdom of God. If restoration is going to happen, we must embrace the bad news and say, yes, we are sinners. That's tough. That's tough. We have people in our church leave the church because we say this. But it's clear here in this story, Peter is able to say, I'm a part of the problem. I'm a part of the bad news. And until that point, Jesus will not restore. This week I was working in my house, and back in December, it's just two months ago, back in December I put up some sheetrock, and here it is February, and I'm realizing I didn't do it so well. I was supposed to build a little thing there for this uh, puppy I have, and uh, he's already wrecked it. It's already rotten. It's already got a gaping hole in this sheetrock that I put in there to hold him in. And I, I went there, and it wasn't working, obviously. And it took, me, it took me a good 15 minutes to admit to myself that my sheetrocking <laughs> wasn't going to work, that it was chewed up, that it had a hole in it. But before I could actually replace it, I had to get over the hump that I hadn't done such a brilliant job in the first place. And it's a similar concept going on with us today. Today, if we're, if we're going to be recreated, restructured, transformed by the good news that the king has arrived and he is willing to die as your substitute, he is willing to grant you the Holy Spirit of God that will regenerate you, turn you into a new person, we must, as Peter, bow down and recognize that he is king and we are not. The bad news yields this good news of the kingdom of God. And we see this. And look at how Jesus responds here. Jesus says, get away from me. What is, I mean, Peter says, get away from me. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, doesn't say get away from me, you sinner. That's what you would expect, right? The unholy one is saying, get away from me, holy one. You expect the holy one to say, get on out of here, sinner. It's not the way it works. Instead, he says, do not be afraid. That's the response of God 
to those of us with the courage enough, if you can have the humility, the strength, the meekness, the courage to confess who you are to Jesus, he will say to you, do not be afraid. Because your world was never meant to be ruled by you anyway. I got this. Do not be afraid because I will sacrifice my life for yours, thereby serving as a punishment substitute. Do not be afraid for God will no longer hold your sins against you. Do not be afraid because I give you my own righteousness in this exchange, my character for yours. Do not be afraid because I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. And that will be the answer of Christ every time we turn to him. Some of you have never ever turn to God in this way. And I encourage you, I beg you to do it today. Turn to Christ. Admit who you are and see what happens. He will come to you and dispel your fears. Others of us need to do it afresh. Admit our sinfulness in the eyes of the Creator and watch Him embrace us. Watch Him comfort us as subjects of His kingdom. Come and let the King comfort you. So we've seen three new rules in this current raging cosmic yet personal game of thrones, this clash of kingdoms. Everything's up for grabs. The king will rescue many through us. The king will comfort his subject. One more new rule. The king must be our treasure. The king must be our treasure. The final sight here on the trail. It's a, it's a subtle one. Don't miss it. It's only contained in one verse here, in verse 11. Look what happens, though, again. And when everybody, after this is all over, they bring their boats to the land, and they left everything, and they followed him. And they left everything. They left everything. So powerful in its brevity and its concision. The Scripture simply states here that Simon Peter after being called by Christ and having confessed to him, he leaves everything to embrace Jesus. This reminds me so much of another verse. I remember some 12 years ago sitting with uh, Pastor Sean and at that time Pastor Kent in a CC's restaurant in Knoxville, Tennessee, and we were talking about this idea of planting a church. And this verse, another verse, very similar to this, came up. Matthew 13, 44, you might remember it. A whale of a verse written very shortly. Jesus is talking about the kingdom there. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells what? All that he had, sells everything. And he buys that field. He leaves everything to treasure Christ. The king must be our treasure in this new life. And the point made by Jesus here and the point Luke is trying to get across is not that all of us should be impoverished because we've given all of our things away. The point is the heart. We must be willing in our heart to treasure him above all things. For Peter, it did mean living, leaving the fishing enterprise. God might call you to leave. God might call you to stay. But he calls chiefly for your heart. 
One pastor wrote this illustration. It's as if a poor child entered a toy store and the owner came out and he said, look, you can have the best and most expensive toy in this store if you want it more than anything else. For my kids, it might be the Batman Lego stuff, right? It might be it for them. If you want it the most, then it's yours. That's the deal. In other words, there is a condition for having the kingdom, for having a king on your side, for having a king as your friend. But the condition is not wealth. It's not power. It's not eminence or intelligence. No, the condition is that you prize the kingdom more than you prize anything else. That's why we name the church Treasuring Christ, because we want Christ to be your treasure. And we must repeat this to ourselves over and over again, this, this language of, are you ready to leave everything? What's, what's in the way of, of God as your treasure this week? How are your affections? That's how we need to talk to each other. Because Peter, leaving everything, signifies what it is to be a disciple. Total commitment to the God whom he treasures. And this, in this new realm of righteousness, is how it must go. So, in review here, we've seen four new rules in this new game of thrones, this clash of kingdoms. Everything's up for grabs. The king will rescue many through us. The king comforts us with his subjects, and the king must now be our treasure. What I'm going to ask you to do is simply pick one of those, and I want you just to, to pray about it now as we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. You might need to meditate that everything in your life is up for grabs. God can change what you think he may not can change. He can bust your nets. You might need to meditate that the king is going to rescue so many through us. Maybe you've had a hopeless week with your kids or with your neighbors, with your in-laws, and you're thinking, God, no way you can work here. God's going to do it. He's going to save a multitude, and it's going to be through us. Maybe you need to ponder and come to the king for the first time, seeking this comfort because you know in your heart of hearts, that you're a rebel. You're not holy like Jesus. In fact, you're unholy. And that bad news will actually lead to the good news of an encounter with the king of the universe. You may need to confess during this time. And that's okay. And finally, you may need to take afresh the king as your treasure. So after I pray, we're going to have the Lord's Supper together as usual. We have tables here in the front and in the back. If you're a guest with us and you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to take the table. If you're here today and you've never confessed Jesus as your treasure, this meal is for you, but we just ask that you watch it. Don't take of it. Watch it. Watch us. Watch what it looks like to follow a king. And as we take it, I'll ask everyone just to pray, to meditate, and encounter God in this moment. Let the Scriptures speak to you. And then when you're ready, come to the table, take the elements back, and then after some prayer, take the supper. So let's pray together. God, we do pray 
you would show us your kingdom. Show us the glories. Demonstrate just how mighty you are in our lives. Turn everything on its head, God. Let us know that everything is up for grabs to be recreated and transformed. Our broken relationships, our character stains, the fact that we are victimized, you can change this. Everything is up for grabs. And God, we celebrate. We celebrate the catch. The catch you've already done for all these people who are members of TCC and the catch you're going to do globally through this church and locally through our ministries and our, our devout servants who go out in the name of the King. We celebrate these things. And God, help us to confess where we are sinful. Help us to own the bad news so that the good news can break through. God, prepare our hearts to live under the rule of a new king. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.